Well, thank you so much, guys, for playing my new favorite song. And uh, that is, as you know, uh, this the testimony of Job. Job 13, 15, he said, though you slay me, I will yet praise you. And uh, at the end of the day, after going through all that he went through, he said, you know, I'd heard about you, but now I've seen you. And um, I love the way that song articulates that, that testimony of that great suffering soul, um, our beloved example, Job. And uh, I'm so thankful that you came back today to hear the second part of my message that I started last week. I, I'm sure some of you left going, man, that dude is really sick. I don't want to catch what he's got. I may not come back until that thing gets out of the building, you know. But um, I hope you've come back for the cure because that's what I promised, and uh, not for the bomb to go off. And I, I know that uh, based on some of my conversations with uh, some of the elders and, and grow group leaders that uh, some of you guys were just kind of waiting for me to drop, you know, a bomb or something that I was going to resign. And um, in fact, I had to uh, apologize to one individual this morning and said, hey, I'm, I'm really sorry. I freaked you out last week. <laughs> That wasn't my intent at all, and uh, as far as I know, uh, just to reassure you, uh, I'm not planning on going anywhere. You're kind of stuck with me, and, uh, and, and some people, you know, hey, just, just want to get out in the open so you're not all sitting there going, okay, I, 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 how long is he going to take before he tells us, you know, this morning? Um, Listen, some, some, some people, when they get hit by stuff like this, and, and by the way, we all have to sail on this sea at some point in life. And based on the encouragement that I got from so many of you last week, you know, through your comments, emails, uh, things like that, um, you know, this is, uh, there, there's plenty of you that have been sailing in this sea. <laughs> you know this sea better than I do. And, uh, and so uh, thank you for your encouragement. And, uh, you know, sometimes... We all deal with this stuff differently, and some people do pack up and leave, um, and others stay put and, and work through it where they're at, and I don't honestly know any other way of doing it, and uh, uh, if you haven't figured it out yet about me, I, I process things um, through preaching. Some people write songs, I write sermons, and, uh, and so preaching is just a, a great uh, exercise for me to process what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, what I'm going through, and, and, and that's what you heard last week, and, and I know, I know it's unsettling for, for some of you when you see your pastor wobble a bit, because pastors aren't supposed to wobble, they're supposed to always be a rock, right, and, uh, and that might be because you've got me on a pedestal that I shouldn't be on, if that freaks you out too much last week. And, um, but I just want you to know, by the grace of God, I'm going to be just fine. And not just fine, but hopefully you're getting the sense that you're going to get a better pastor and preacher through this deal. And I was so encouraged by a quote I read by Martin Luther. Martin Luther said that he never understood the Psalms until he was in trouble. 
And he said tribulation made him understand the Bible. And then he added this. He said prayer, studying, and suffering make a pastor. And frankly, I don't know, and I've shared this with Kel and, and a few others, that I don't know that I've ever really suffered in life. I've had a pretty jaded, jaded, that's not the word. What's the word I'm looking for? Charmed. How's that? It's better. Not a jaded. I haven't had a jaded life. That's not the right word. I've had a very charmed life in many ways and uh, never really had to suffer too much. And so guess what? It's my turn. And, uh, and, uh, and so this is a good thing. And so I'm very excited to have you turn back to Psalm 42 with me and uh, to share some more of the things that God's been teaching me and helping me understand um, that I thought I may have understood in years past as I read this psalm and meditated on this psalm, but it's just become so much richer, so much sweeter to me um, in these days. And so let me reread the psalm for you as we begin this, this morning. Psalm 42. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember and I pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise Him for the help of His presence. O my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan, the peaks of Hermon, from Mount Mizar, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. I will say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Father, we thank you for your precious word, which is the way you provide us hope. And so as we meditate on this, this psalm this morning, I pray you'd fill our hearts with truth, and with that truth would come hope. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, back in 1965, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the famous doctor turned preacher who 
ministered at Westminster Chapel in London, published a book entitled Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Its Cure. And over the past 50 years or so, it's become an evangelical classic, which is likely due to the fact that depression is an issue that so many Christians deal with and are desperate for relief. I've had a copy of this book on my shelf for close to 20 years, but never really felt the need to read it until now. And uh, of all the things I've read so far in this book, which, by the way, is an exposition of Psalm 42, uh, there's been one sentence, one short sentence that I found most helpful and that I think very plainly and frankly encapsulates the main lesson of Psalm 42. Listen to the good doctor, the physician of the soul, Martin Lloyd-Jones. Quote, have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Let me repeat that. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself. I think that's the psalmist's struggle with depression in a nutshell. And that has been my struggle lately. I've spent way too much time listening to myself and not enough time talking to myself, and I realize that's why I've been so happy. And guess what? That's why you get unhappy at times too. All of us go through seasons when the accumulated weight of the burdens and pressures and demands and disappointments of life bear down upon our souls and and threaten to steal our joy. And when someone is in one of those seasons which the ancients described as the dark night of the soul uh, and they're feeling discouraged and depressed, you can usually pick up on it just by looking at their countenance or watching their demeanor. And so it really was no surprise to Kelly and me that when after spending an afternoon with some dear friends and and mentors uh, a couple weeks ago that we hadn't seen for a while, and they just very bluntly said, you guys appear tired and subdued. It's hard to hide unhappiness, isn't it? I remember when our kids were little, something, and, and something bad happened to them that, that they didn't want or they didn't like, like having to go to bed or having to eat their vegetables, and they were pitching a fit. We always told them that they needed to have a happy heart. You need to have a happy heart. Come on, happy heart now. I know you're struggling, but you need to have a happy heart. Well, the longer I live and the more bad breaks and heartaches that I experienced, the more I've realized that's a whole lot easier said than done. And ultimately, we're just a bunch of big kids. Because when something happens to us that we don't want or don't like, our natural tendency is to what? Pitch a fit. Only now it's a more adult version. Much more controlled, concealed on the outside, but definitely not a happy heart on the inside. And so rather than praising God and and placing our hope in God, like he's commanded us, we 
protest. We complain about the troubles, the difficulties that he has ordained for our lives. And that's what the psalmist was doing in Psalm 42, at least for a good portion of the psalm. And as I mentioned last week, we don't know for sure who the author was or the occasion that inspired this particular song, but this could have been the personal experience of one of the sons of Korah. It's attributed to them, a mascal of the sons of Korah. They were the singers, they were, they were the musicians of the tabernacle and the temple, and if that is so, um, it seems that this godly worship leader was feeling the effects of, of living in exile far from the place of worship in Jerusalem and was longing to be back in God's presence. Well, regardless of who the author is, it's, it's obvious that he was experiencing some things he didn't want and didn't like. He was lamenting, he was complaining about a very troubling situation in his life, which caused him to be depressed, which caused him to be disturbed. And in this psalm, he shared the reasons why he was depressed and why he was disturbed, and he admitted that his heart was fluctuating back and forth between faith and, and doubt and hope and despair and joy and sorrow. And yet this psalmist shows us in the ups and downs of life how not to be controlled by our feelings or let our joy be dictated by our circumstances. And his bout of depression was relieved when he took hold of himself and examined himself and called himself to account and preached truth to himself and reminded himself of who God is and what he has done and what he has promised to do. And so his spirits were lifted when he realized that, sure, there were plenty of problems in his life to cause him despair, but there were far more promises in God's word to give him hope. And in the end, his, his confident trust in God is what soothed and steadied his wobbly soul amidst the tough times he was going through. I mentioned last week that this beloved psalm is a divinely prescribed, spirit-inspired antidepressant for the downcast of soul. We all need a dose of Psalm 42 from time to time. We'll call it mascal kind of to rival Paxil, right? We'll call it Maskell, and that's what it's referred to in its title, a Maskell of the sons of Korah. In other words, a Maskell was a psalm of instruction. It was intended to teach us, and so that means we can go to school on this psalm and learn how to respond whenever we find ourselves in an unhappy place in our lives. You ever find yourself in an unhappy place? Well, rather than following a uh, a strict exegetical outline that just walks us verse by verse from 1 to verse 11, uh, I've chosen to take a different approach, more of a topical or devotional approach to this psalm, and, and we began looking last week at how this text exposes both the causes and the cure for depression. The causes and the cure for depression. We see, first of all, the causes of depression... Uh, in the stanzas, the three stanzas um, of this psalm, and also in the psalm that follows it, verse uh, chapter 43, Psalm 43, we said last week, um, originally was together uh, in the, the manuscripts, Hebrew manuscripts long ago, and uh, there's no title uh, given to it as all the other ones are given a title, and, and there's a repeated phrase, 
uh, in, in uh, Psalm 42 and, and Psalm 43, which indicates that these were to be considered together as a package. And so when you look at the three stanzas or verses in Psalm 42 and 43, we're talking about verses 1 through 4 of, of Psalm 42 and verses 6 through 11, and then also chapter 43, Psalm 43, verses 1 through 4, these three stanzas, you can discern at least three reasons why the psalmist was depressed and disturbed. First of all, he felt abandoned by God. He felt abandoned by God. He says, as the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? And so the psalmist likened himself to a panting deer as it wandered through a parched desert during a season of drought, desperately searching for some water to quench his thirst. And so we see this devout man was pursuing God. He was hungering. He was thirsting after God. He was longing for intimate communion with God. He wanted to feel close to God like he had in the past, but he was experiencing a spiritual dryness in his soul, which made him feel distant from God. Verse 3, my tears have been my food day and night when they say to, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? He was describing here the sadness of his soul as a result of being separated from God and isolated from the place of worship. And he remembered how he used to lead the pilgrimage to the house of God. As they ascended to the city of Jerusalem for the annual festivals, he says in verse 4, these things I remember and pour out my soul within me, for I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival, but now he was far from that place and far from that experience. It seemed so foreign to him, that experience. We saw in verse 6 when he said, Oh my God, my soul is in despair within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of the Jordan and the peaks of Hermon and from Mount Mizar. For some unknown reason, he was in the land of Jordan and Mount Hermon, which is on the border of Syria, which is the farthest point you can go in Palestine away from Jerusalem. And so he felt alienated from God. And what's, what's even worse, he felt abandoned by God. Verse 9, I will say to God, my rock, why have you, what? Forgotten me. Why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy, he says. It appeared to him that his prayers had gone unheard and unanswered and that for some reason God had rejected him. In fact, he actually says that in Psalm 43, verse 2, for you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? And so the first cause of his depression was feeling like God had not just forgotten him, but had totally forsaken him. He was a man who was sincerely longing for the presence of God, but all he felt was the absence of God. And there's nothing more depressing and disturbing than that. When you're seeking God's presence, but all you sense is God's absence. And so he was abandoned by God, or so he felt. Secondly, he was antagonized by enemies. He was antagonized by enemies. 
And to add insult to injury, the psalmist had some enemies who rubbed his nose in the fact that from all outward appearances, it did appear that God had forsaken him. And they relentlessly and ruthlessly taunted him with the classic age-old pagan question, where is your God? In other words, where, where is your God when you need him now? Notice verse 3, he says this. While they say to me all day long, where is your God? Verses 9 and 10, why do I go mourning because the oppression of the enemy as a shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? And by the way, this same question was nagging his own soul. He probably thought to himself, well, you know, that's a good question. Guys, I've been asking myself the same thing. And so these attacks from his enemies were persistent, they were painful, and the psalmist pleaded with God to vindicate him from their unjust accusations and deliver him from their cruel abuse. Notice Psalm 43, verse 1, he says, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning? Because of the oppression of the enemy. Few things are more discouraging and disturbing than to be falsely accused and maliciously slandered. And in an ancient context, you could say that these enemies were trolling the psalmist. It's a term I've recently learned, trolling. It's kind of a fishing analogy when it comes to the internet. When you post something online which is deliberately offensive or provocative with the aim of upsetting someone or eliciting an angry response... And that's essentially what these enemies were doing to him. They were, they were trolling him. They were, trying to, they, were, they were taunting him and trying to get him to respond in an angry way. And so he, was, he allowed himself to be given over to mourning. He wasn't just listening to himself. He was listening to his enemies. And that was why he was so unhappy, because <laughs> he wasn't talking to himself. He wasn't speaking truth to himself. He was listening to the lies of his enemies. And so he was abandoned by God. He was antagonized by his enemies. And thirdly, he was afflicted by trials. He was afflicted by trials. And on top of feeling abandoned and and, and being antagonized by his enemies, he, he was afflicted by many, many trials. Notice verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have rolled over me. Again, this is in the context of verse 6. The land of Jordan, the peaks of, of Mount Hermon. 
This is where the headwaters of, of the Jordan River are located and the snow melts on the mountains and, and flows southward into the Sea of Galilee, then down into the Dead Sea. And it, it may have been that the psalmist was, was sitting there observing the, the raging waterfalls at, at the foot of Mount Hermon, just violently splashing and hissing over the boulders and, 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 and considered to himself and thought to himself, this is, this is a great illustration of how I'm feeling right now. And what I'm going through right now, this this intense suffering that I'm experiencing. God kept pouring down on him one trial after another after another. He felt completely overwhelmed by this deluge of tribulation that God had sovereignly ordained for his life. And as wave after wave kept pummeling his soul He felt like he was drowning in sorrow and pain. In fact, you can look at Jonah chapter 2, and Jonah uses the same language as the psalmist here in verse 7 as he was, after he had been thrown overboard and was drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. He speaks, he cries out to God with these same words. I'm sure you've all been to the beach at one point in your life and maybe you've had the pleasure of body surfing or actually surfing or boogie boarding and, and, and it's all fun until you wipe out, especially when a big set of waves is bearing down on you and you get pummeled by a wave and, and so you're trying to gather yourself together and find the surface and you get up to the surface and you're trying to stand up and just when you do, boom, you get hit by another wave and, and then you're trying to do the same thing and you're trying to find your board or your whatever and, and you get up again and boom, you get knocked down again and you have a hard time standing up and, and catching your breath. That's what it's like when we face trial after trial trial in our lives, these, these breakers and waves continue to roll over us. And so feeling abandoned by God, getting antagonized by enemies and being afflicted by trials, these are just a, a few of the main causes of depression. And so I ask you, are you possibly experiencing any of these things right now? And what are they doing to your soul? Are they causing your soul to be depressed and disturbed like they were the psalmist? Maybe it's not so much these things, but maybe it's, 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 it's simply the memories of former times or better days that's got you down. You just wish things could be the way they used to be. I think that's what's going on in verse 4. These things I remember and pour out my soul within me. For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with a voice of joy and thanksgiving. Uh, Molded a king vessel. What he was essentially saying there is, man, I I wish things could be the way they used to be. Now sometimes looking back at the past, it's a good thing. But other times, it simply adds to our sorrow and our pain, and it makes us even more discouraged and even more depressed. That's why I love the example of Paul in in Philippians chapter 3 when he said that 
I forget what lies behind me and I press on toward what lies ahead. I have my eyes fixed on the goal, the prize of becoming like Jesus. Several months back, I received an email that was uh, a post from Alistair Begg in his Truth for Life daily devotional, and it was entitled, Don't Idolize the Past. Don't idolize the past. Caught my attention. And this is what he wrote. Quote, many Christians are able to view the past with pleasure but regard the present with dissatisfaction. They look back upon the days that they have spent in communing with the Lord as being the sweetest and the best they have ever known. But as to the present, it is as if they were smothered by a heavy blanket of gloom and dreariness. Once they lived near Jesus, but now they feel they have wandered from him. And they say, oh, that I were as in the months of old. Quote from Job 29, 2. Oh, that I were as in the months of old. Christian, if you are not now as you were in the months of old, do not be content to simply wish for return of your former happiness, but go at once to seek your master and tell him your sad state. Ask his grace and strength to enable you to walk more closely with him, humble yourself before him, and he will lift you up and allow you once more to enjoy the light of his countenance. Do not sit down to sigh and lament While the beloved physician lives, there is hope. There is a certainty of recovery, even for the worst cases. Amen? It's good advice, good counsel. And that quote from Alistair Begg primes our hearts for the second part of this psalm, and that is the cure for depression, the cure for depression. And as I pointed out last week, there are three identical verses in Psalm 42 and Psalm 43, and I'm convinced that what the psalmist repeatedly does and says in these two psalms reveals the cure for depression. Verse 5, why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. Verse 11, and why are you in despair, O my soul? And why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall yet praise him and the help of my countenance and my God. And verse 5 of Psalm 43, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. It's starting to sound like a broken record. And yet here we have a biblical model of how a suffering individual should process their pain and their sorrow with an attitude of worship. Like Job, though he slay me, I will hope in him. Or Habakkuk, as he sat and waited for the destruction of Jerusalem by their enemies, the Babylonians. This is what he said, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom and there be no fruit on the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, and you're thinking, yeah, so? Well, if you were living in an agricultural community, society, and that's what 
was your livelihood. Your survival was based on all those things. That was an indication of God's, all those things were an indication of God's blessing in your life. You would be bumming too. And he said, even though all this stuff may not be happening, yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. Love that. And similarly here, we witness the psalmist doing something that might seem strange at first and and almost silly. I I mentioned this last night. It's almost silly. It's, It's so simple and yet so profound. He was... He was, he was simply talking to himself. That's what he was doing. He was talking to himself. And we get to eavesdrop on the conversation that he had with himself. How cool is that? Now, this concept of talking to yourself may be new to you. It may sound weird to you. But it's something that many Authors have written about over the years, Paul Tripp being one of them, and in uh, a devotional that he wrote a few years back, he said this, and the title of this was Talking to Yourself. Listen carefully to, to Paul Tripp. Quote, he says, I find myself saying it all the time. When people hear it, they laugh, but actually I'm being quite serious when I say it. Here it is. You ready? Here it is. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. No one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. He goes on to explain, you're in an unending conversation with yourself. You are talking to yourself all the time, interpreting, organizing, and analyzing what's going on inside you and around you. You may be talking to yourself right now about why you feel so tired. Or maybe you woke up this morning with a sense of dread and you're not sure why. Maybe your mind has traveled back to your distant past and for reasons you don't understand, you're recalling events from your early childhood. The point is that you are constantly involved in an internal conversation that greatly influences the things you decide, say, and do. And then he asks this question. What do you regularly tell yourself about yourself, God, and your circumstances? Do your words to yourself encourage faith, hope, and courage, or do they stimulate doubt, discouragement, and fear? Do you remind yourself that God is near, or do you reason with yourself that given your circumstances, he must be distant? Here's the question. How wholesome, faith-driven, and Christ-centered is the conversation that you have with yourself every day? Do you remind yourself of your need? Do you point yourself once again to the beauty and practicality of God's grace? Do you tell yourself to run toward him in those moments when you feel like running from him? And then he repeats himself. He says, no one is more influential in your life than you are because no one talks to you more than you do. And then he ends with this simple question, how well are you counseling yourself? How well are you counseling yourself? Listen, no one counsels you or preaches to you better than yourself. 
You're a better preacher to yourself than I am a preacher to you. And so we get to see and hear the psalmist's internal conversation, which can be divided into two parts. First, he, he interrogated himself, and then he implored himself. He, he first questioned his soul, and then he exhorted his soul. And I think these are the two steps to overcoming depression. These are the, the two things that we must do if we want to snap out of a spiritual funk. I have them written in your notes there on your outline. First of all is self-contemplation. Second of all is self-confrontation. Self-contemplation and then self-confrontation. Well, we, we could say this whole thing was a self-confrontation because you could, you could um, interpret his question to himself, why are you in despair of my soul and why have you become disturbed within me, was, was more of a rebuke. Come on, soul, buck up. Why, why are you so... Uh, Bummed out right now. He, he, he could have been just kind of rebuking. It was maybe more of a rebuke than it was a, a, a sincere question, an honest question. I've chosen to take this as an honest question. Why are you in despair, O oh my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? And at the risk of being morbidly introspective, which is one of the classic symptoms of depression, by the way, I think it's appropriate for us to do some healthy, honest introspection or self-examination. We need to examine and explore our souls and force ourselves to answer that nagging question, why am I so unhappy? You need to ask yourself, well, why, why am I so depressed? Why am I so disturbed? And it might be helpful to write down a list of the things that are causing you to despair, like the one I read to you last week. But once you've carefully evaluated why you're feeling down, you shouldn't just dwell on that list, but, but quickly take the focus off yourself and get it back on God. Why? Because depressed people tend to be self-consumed and self-absorbed. And as long as you keep focusing on yourself and your problems, you will keep feeling sad and stressed. But when you fix your eyes on God and remind yourself of all that you know to be true about him, your hope and your peace and your joy will be restored. You see, the, the psalmist knew, he knew, he knew that his real problem was not that God had forgotten him. He knew better than that. The real issue was he had forgotten God. That was a real issue. And that brings us to the second step here, is that is self-confrontation. You have self-contemplation, but then you have self-confrontation. And in the midst of his despair, the psalmist confronts himself, he exhorts himself, he admonishes himself, he, he challenges himself to put his hope in God. Notice he says, why are you in despair of my soul? Why have you become disturbed within me? Hope in God. That, that's the most important phrase in this entire psalm. If you were to boil this all down, that's it right there. Circle it, underline it, bracket it, star it. 
put arrows, focus to it, set up a neon sign, you know, whatever you got to do. Hope in God. And so if this is so important, we got to understand what does it mean then to hope in God? We're going to tell ourselves to hope in God, but what does that practically mean? Not enough just to tell ourselves to hope in God. We, we need to know what that means and what that looks like and feels like and what we need to think like, not what we need to act like. The word hope is a, a beautiful, powerful term in Scripture. It's and maybe just as a simple definition of hope, it's a, it's a patient, confident expectation that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. That's hope. A patient, confident expectation that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. Maybe another way you could say this, it's a patient, confident conviction that God is who he says he is and a patient, confident expectation that he will do what he says he will do. In other words, hope is trusting that God will act on our behalf in the future like he always has in the past. That's hope. And whenever we face pressures and problems in life, what we need most is hope. And guess what, folks? God is the only source of hope. And that's why those who reject God, who deny God, consign themselves to a miserable, hopeless existence because hope can only be found in God. And when you write off God, you also write write off hope. And that's why Paul said in Ephesians 2 of uh, reminding the uh, believers in Ephesus of their former life before Christ that they had no hope and they were without God in the world. He told the Romans in Romans 15, 13, he said, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. The point is hope is found in God, and the primary means by which he provides us hope is by his spirit through his word. Romans 15, 4, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction, so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have what? Hope. And not only does God provide us with hope through the many promises contained in the scriptures, He also provides us with hope through the many people in Scripture who experienced similar trials and maybe even worse trials, and and yet they successfully overcame them. And the author of Psalm 42 is one of those people. And like the psalmist, we're all guilty at times of losing sight of God in the midst of life's pressures and problems. And listen, when we lose sight of God, we also lose what? Hope. When you lose sight of God, you lose hope. And so in order for hope to be restored, we need to take hold of ourselves and preach truth about God to our souls. You say, well, what are we to tell ourselves about God? Well, how about we just start with the attributes of God that are specifically mentioned here in this psalm, which provides some, some gracious gulps of air, if you will, for anyone drowning in a sea of despair. You need a gulp of air this morning? You feel like you're drowning? Well, here you go. What are some of the attributes of God revealed in this psalm? How about 
God's eternal self-existence. Verse 2, my soul thirsts for God for the, what? The living God. This is the fact that God is alive. There's a God. And He's always been there. He always will be there. And uh, like Catherine, Martin Luther's wife, helping him snap out of his spiritual funk and he, she shows up in the black dress and he says, who, who, who died? And, and uh, thinking she was on her way to a funeral and she said, well, well God died. And he said, well, you, you, you foolish woman, what are you talking about? And she said, well, by the way, you're acting. I thought God died. What a practical application of God's eternal self-existence. That God is alive and well. And he's sitting on his throne. He hasn't gone anywhere. And that brings us to the second attribute. How about God's omnipresence? Verse 5. He says, hope in God for I shall again praise him for the help of his presence. When we say that God is omnipresent, we mean that he's what? Everywhere. And so you feel like, oh man, God feels so far away. Well, is that true? Where where is God when I know he's right here? Where he's always been. He's omnipresent. How about God's sovereignty? How about God's sovereignty? This is my, probably where I get the biggest breath of fresh air when I need a gulp of air is is to meditate on God's sovereignty. Verse 7, deep calls to deep at the sound of your waterfalls, all your breakers, and your waves have rolled over me. Guess what? He's not blaming God for all his problems. He's acknowledging the fact that, God, I know all these things are coming from your hand. You have sovereignly ordained these things for my life, for your glory, and for my good. God's in control. God's in control. And he's got this, whatever it is, he's got it. How about God's love? Verse 8, the Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime. Sometimes we, we question whether or not God really loves us. Well, how could this be happening? If God really loved me. He wouldn't let this happen to me. Well, don't question the love of God. Nothing, absolutely nothing can ever separate you from his love. How about God's imminency? Or intimacy, verse 8, he says, he says he prays to the God of my life. The God of my life. Not just somebody else's life, but, but my life. This is not just the God of the universe. This is my God. I have a personal relationship with God. He's the God of my life. We talk about God's transcendency, that he's just way out there. That, that he's beyond us, and that's true. But there's also an attribute of God called his Imminency, which means his closeness, his nearness. The nearness of God is my what? Good. How about God's immutability? Notice verse 9, and I will say to God, my rock. Why is that such a good analogy of God? Because a rock is what? Stable and secure, and it never changes. You go find some big old boulder that's been there for hundreds of years, and you just push on that sucker all day, every day, for months, for years, and it will not budge. 
Listen, God does not budge. God does not move. God does not change. That's God's immutability. Your circumstances might be changing all over the place faster than you can keep up with them. But guess what? God's not changing. He's the same. He's faithful. Maybe that's another way to put it. This is God's faithfulness. How about God's justice? God's justice. Psalm 43, verse 1, Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. You might feel like you're being treated unfairly. This is just not fair. I don't deserve this. Well, guess what? God is fair. God is just. And you need to entrust yourself to him who judges righteously. Don't revile in return. And trust yourself to the Lord. How about God's omnipotence? His omnipotence. Look at verse 2 in verse, uh, Psalm 43. For you are the God of my strength. Well, the psalmist didn't have much strength at this point. He knew his strength was in who? Was in God. Basically, he's saying, listen, God, God is the strength of my life. It's not my strength I'm talking about. It's, it's, it's his strength. This is talking about his mighty power, his omnipotence, that he has the power to do anything he wants, anytime he wants. And nobody can thwart his power. How about God's holiness? God's holiness. Verse 3 of chapter of Psalm 43, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. God's holiness. And uh, this is a great attribute to be meditating on when you're suffering because guess what? God uses suffering to make us holy even as he is holy. And that's something we need to remember. God is purifying us. He's perfecting us so that we could share in his holiness. And then how about this, finally? And this is just 10, just a list of 10 things here. But how about God's adequacy? God's adequacy. You don't normally hear that in the list of, of, of God's attributes or in books on God's attributes. But I like this term, God's adequacy. And what I'm getting at is, look at verse 4. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. In other words, nothing brings me more joy than God. I am hunting for joy in nothing but God. I'm finding my joy in nothing but God. And so just very practically, when we get down and we need to refocus and remind ourselves of certain things, these are, this is where we need to go first. We, we need to go to the characteristics of God, these characteristics of God, along with His grace, His mercy, His wisdom, His, his goodness. And, and listen, the bottom line is here, when we're bummed out, is whether or not we believe these things. That's the bottom line. It's whether or not we're going to believe these things. Are these things true? Answer? Absolutely. How do we know they're true? Because it says it in God's word, and God's word is true. Not to mention the fact that we've seen it fleshed out in our own experience that these things are true. The question is then, are, are you going to believe it's true or not? They're true. You have a choice. You can believe it or not. Martin Lloyd-Jones, in his book, Spiritual Depression, says this. He says, the ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. 
The ultimate cause of spiritual depression is unbelief. He talks about the psalmist. He says his faith and belief in God were not what they ought to be. That was the problem. His faith in God was not what they ought to be. But then he goes on. He says this man was not content just to lie down and commiserate with himself. He does, not, he does, he, he does something about it. He takes himself in hand, but he does something which is more important still. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Somebody else is talking about talking to yourself. It's not just Paul Tripp. He didn't just come up with this. Martin Lloyd-Jones, 50 years ago, was talking about talking to yourself. And this is what Lloyd-Jones says. The main art in the, in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand. You have to address yourself, preach to yourself, question yourself. You must turn on yourself, abrade yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is, and what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note. I love this. Defy yourself, and defy other people, and defy the devil and the whole world, and say with this man, I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. Love that phrase. We've yet to talk about it. He says, hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Now, this could be understood in a couple of ways. Either the psalmist was expressing his confidence that God's grace would see him through this present struggle with depression, and there would come a day in the future when his spirits would be lifted enough that he would once again be able to praise God. That might be true, but in light of the context of confronting and counseling himself, I think it's better to understand that the psalmist was telling himself at that moment to stop protesting and start praising God, regardless of how he felt and even if his circumstances never changed. And that may be true. Some of your circumstances in life may never change change. So if you're waiting around for your circumstances to change so you can start praising the Lord, you just better forget about that and just start doing it now. Amen? What is this? How do we do do this practically? I don't want to get any of you locked up in some psych ward because you're walking around your workplace or Walmart talking to yourself out loud and people are going, okay, that person's really weird and acting really kind of funny and where are the men in the white coats, right? That's not how this works. Again, this is an internal conversation by and large. But notice verse 8. The Lord will command his loving kindness in the daytime and his song will be with me in the night, a prayer to the God of my life. In other words, one of the practical ways to lift our spirits and to praise God is through songs and prayers. I think this is interesting. Have you ever... Notice that your soul is rarely sad or stressed out 
when you're singing or praying. We, we sang some awesome songs already here this morning. And, 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 and what a joy to sing those songs. I wasn't just sitting there going, oh man, I'm so bummed out. And man, I just have a hard time singing all this. And No, I'm going I'm, I'm to sing this. This is, this is bringing me joy. It's making me happy. It's, it, it's, it, this, is, this is what I want to believe and what I want to, how I want to live. And, and so we're, we're singing and we're praying. And, and well, why is that when, when you're singing or praying, you're, you're, you're not usually depressed or disturbed? Why? Because you're not listening to yourself. You're talking to yourself and you're thinking about God and not your problems. You might need to make a second list, not just a protest list, why are you downcast list, but maybe a second list where you write down all the reasons you have to praise God. That might be an even better list, a more helpful list. Listen, you may be struggling in your marriage. You may be grieving over your children. You may be living with regrets or facing major financial pressures or dealing with chronic pain or lacking direction in your life or being falsely accused and, or slandered or feeling distant from God. But surely, surely there is something, something, there's at least one thing that you can praise God about this morning. And so make a list of the things that you can be thankful for. And I would encourage you to compare your lists. Put your lists side by side. Protest list, praise list. And I guarantee you there are going to be far more, you'll realize, so there's, there's far more reasons for you to be glad than gloomy. Notice in Psalm 43, verse 3, Again, this is a song, this is a prayer, this is an example of this song in the night, this prayer to the God of my life. Oh, send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to my exceeding joy, and upon the lyre I shall praise you, O oh God, my God. So here's, what is he praying? He's praying for light, he's praying for truth, he's praying for joy, and I think the, the picture here is that, 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 that as we're being escorted back into God's presence by reading and meditating on his word and sitting under the preaching of his word, what does Psalm 119, 105 says? Thy word is a, what? Light unto my path. John 17, 70, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. And so as you're being escorted back into the presence of of God through the scriptures, our souls will be restored and our countenance will be lifted. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect, restoring the soul. And so it may be that our circumstances have yet to change, may never change, but our perspective has. Why? Because we're delighting in God. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding 
joy. Listen, the way to overcome depression is to delight in God. You say, well, what does that mean? It means that you seek and find your joy and your happiness in God and God alone. Listen, it is impossible to be depressed when you're truly delighting in God. And I would submit to you that if you are depressed, it's because you're not truly delighting in God. Now, I know that sounds strong, and let me provide some, hopefully, pastoral sensitivity based on what we see here in the text that we need to keep in mind that our depression may not go away overnight. And even if it does, it may come back from time to time. And the fact that the psalmist had to repeat this personal pep talk a third time, Psalm 43, verse 5, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you deserved within me? Hope in God, for I shall again, again praise him to help him by countenance. Hey, we got that. Well, apparently he hadn't got it yet. And he was in process. He was working on it. And again, I think this is just a good reminder that sometimes it takes a while for our feelings to catch up with our theology. Also, I think depression can quickly and easily return in response to a a new trial or a fresh attack from our enemies. And so we need to be constantly talking to ourselves to combat our sinful tendency to throw ourselves a pity party when things don't go our way. Last week I said it's, it really comes down to you, you, you can either throw yourself a pretty party or you give yourself a pep talk. I don't know how to make it any simpler than that. One last thing I want to point out in this text. The phrase in the New American Standard, which I'm reading from, in all three of those internal conversations... Those pep talks, if you will, verse 5, verse 11, verse 5 again, end with this phrase, the help of my countenance and my God. In the NIV and the ESV, it's translated differently. In the NIV, it says, my Savior and my God. The ESV says, my salvation and my God. which I I like because it makes it even more obvious that ultimately we need to be preaching the gospel to ourselves. The good news of what? Salvation. And reflect on our position in Christ as a result of all that God has done for us through Christ to save us from sin, death, and hell. That's what we need to be talking to ourselves about preeminently. And you can't read this psalm and not think of Jesus Christ who is referred to in Isaiah 53 as a man of what? Sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as he anticipated experiencing the full fury of God's wrath poured out on him like a thousand thundering waves or waterfalls as he bore the sin 
of mankind in his body on the cross. This is what he said, John 12, 27, my soul has become troubled. When Jesus hung on the cross, he was antagonized. He was abused by his enemies. He was afflicted and he was abandoned by God. That's why he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Listen, the psalmist felt forsaken by our Savior or, or by God, but our Savior was, was forsaken. He was forsaken. He didn't just feel forsaken. He was forsaken. I just feel forsaken. You just feel forsaken. Jesus was forsaken by God. And he was forsaken by God so we could be forgiven. He bore our griefs and our sorrows when he died on the cross in our place. He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities so that our souls would never have to be depressed and distressed in hell for all eternity. Amen? That would be the ultimate bummer, to say the least, putting it lightly. I want to conclude just briefly here by showing an example of what it looks like practically to preach the gospel to yourself. In just a few minutes, we're going to close by singing together one of the most beloved hymns of all time, the title of which I slightly altered to serve as a title for this sermon. Some of you may know the story behind it as well with my soul. In the 1800s, a man named Horatio Spafford established a successful legal practice in the city of Chicago, and he was a close friend of D.L. Moody and other great Christian leaders of that era. And several months prior to the great Chicago fire in 1871, he had invested heavily in real estate along the shores of Lake Michigan, and his holdings were completely destroyed by the fire. A few years later, he desired to rest for his family as as well as wishing to assist Moody and Ira Sankey as worship leader in one of the campaigns they were putting on in Great Britain. So he scheduled a trip to Europe. Due to to some unexpected last-minute business developments, he had to remain in Chicago. He sent his wife and his four daughters on ahead as scheduled, and he planned to follow in a few days. And that's when tragedy struck. The ship on which his family was sailing collided with another ship and sank. And when the survivors finally landed in Wales, Mrs. Spafford cabled her husband the short message, saved alone. Can you even begin to imagine? Shortly afterwards, Spafford left to join his bereaved wife. When he boarded the ship, he asked the captain to alert him when they reached the spot where the ship carrying his family had sunk. The captain graciously honored his request, and as Spafford gazed at the ocean where his beloved daughters had drowned, he penned these precious words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, that was taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. 
though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And the last verse, it says this, And Lord, haste the day when my face shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trump shall resound, and the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. This is absolutely amazing to me. In the midst of this man's pain and sorrow of losing his, his, his precious daughters, instead of focusing on his own personal tragedy, he chose to focus on his personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He was referring to the redemption of Christ and the return of Christ. And listen, when we learn to find our joy in our relationship with Christ alone, then nothing that ever happens to us can steal our joy. And no matter what happens, we are able to say with confident conviction, it is well with my soul. And so when a trial strips us of our health or our wealth or takes away a loved one, we discover, as Spafford discovered, that we can rejoice in the fact that God has saved us. And if that's all we got to praise Him for and thank Him for, that is enough. That is more than enough. It's more than it'll ever be necessary that God has saved us. But there's more, that He is in the process of conforming us into the image of His dear Son, Jesus. And this sometimes sad and painful process we call sanctification will culminate when he returns and we see him face to face. And from that glorious moment on, we'll never, ever again experience any dark nights of the soul because he will wipe away every tear and relieve every pain and erase every sorrow and fear and nothing but thankfulness will fill our hearts. One more quote I've got to read from one of the most helpful books I've read in the last few weeks. It's called The Mission of Sorrow by Gardner Spring, who was a pastor back in the 1800s of a small church in New York, New York area, New York City, I believe. And he writes this book, The Mission of Sorrow. What is the purpose of sorrow? What is sorrow accomplishing in our lives? And the last chapter, this whole thing builds and builds and builds and builds to the last chapter, he titles, No Sorrow There. And he writes about how God uses sorrow to fit us for heaven. And when we finally get there, we'll look back and marvel at why he sovereignly ordained every trial in our lives and how he lovingly sustained us through every pain and sorrow. And this is what he writes. Work with the old English. Oh, what adoring, what humble thankfulness will then take the place of the restless and depressed and murmuring spirit with which they so unsubmissively endured their trials in the present world. 
when those ransomed spirits, that's you, that's me, we're the ransomed spirits, weary of the conflicts of earth, repose, rest under the tree of life, and there at the feet of the enthroned lamb reflect upon the way they have been led through the wilderness and look down upon the agonies of that eternal pit from which they have been rescued, that's hell, how can it be otherwise than that a deep and everlasting sense of their unworthiness and ill desert should add to the fullness of their gratitude and joy? In other words, we're just going to realize we are so unworthy, we are so undeserving. He said this, oh, that I could direct the eyes of the mourner upward. That's you, that's me. If you're mourning, if you're sad, oh, that I could direct your eyes upward and in these hours of darkness, bid your heart rest on that blessed world where in a few short hours, all who fear God and love his son will meet in holier and more intimate fellowship, not to recount their own sorrows, but to tell of him who came to the humiliation of the manger and the agonies of the cross to rescue them from endless weeping and infinite despair. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ and how that is what ultimately gives us hope and gives us joy in life. Lord, I pray that we would recognize this morning that all of our earthly sorrows and suffering are really light, they're momentary, in light of the surpassing greatness of the glories that, we, that will be revealed to us when we're in heaven. And so I pray that we would, you would be gracious to continue to grant us endurance, endurance as pilgrims in this wilderness we call the world and that you would just give us a greater longing for heaven in our trials, we pray, and through our trials and because of our trials and that we would be better suited for heaven because of all that we experience here on this earth. Thank you that because of the cross we can all say this morning, it is well with our soul. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.